And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Hi, and welcome to episode 113 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host, Today, my name is Michael Farmer. I am a assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me are two assistant professors of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. Howdy. And Danny Anderson. Hello. How's it going, guys? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well, doing pretty well. It's great. <laughs> All right. Well, uh... As far as I know, we didn't really get much listener feedback this week. Uh, do either of you have any announcements? Uh, other than uh, by the time this episode drops, there should be another episode of the Christian Feminist Podcast, mm-hmm. ready for your listening pleasure. And, uh, you know, I've, I've already made a comment on their first uh, show notes post, so don't know if they'll pick that up or not, but certainly listen in, certainly leave some reviews on iTunes. Uh, you know, I'm... I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, this one should be good, from what uh, Victoria told me. We should also have a new Profiles episode up soon. I know David is recording it, and he's doing it this week, so I'm not sure if we'll have that up next Monday or the Monday after that. So it'll either have come up the day before you're getting this, or it'll come up six days after you're getting this. But uh, look for that soonish, and that that would be with, uh, with the former, I guess, host of this show, David Grubbs. Should we announce right. who he's interviewing? Or should, should we let it be a surprise? Well, I hear you talking around it, so I reckon we should let it be a surprise. Okay, we'll continue to talk around it, so you give, give you a reason to look for it. <laughs> That's right. And, and Grubbs will be returning someday, just for those... those uh, we say former as if he's long and... and right, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to put that. The once in future... For once in future, King. He'll he'll appreciate that. I think Grubbs would be pleased. (laughs) I don't have any idea if he listens to us when when uh, when he's not on. Yeah, I don't know either. He doesn't mention any. If he does, (laughs) he he uh, he took a break to have more time to work on his dissertation. So I'm sure listening to us would take away that time. Oh yeah, point taken. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, our topic for today is tradition, and it builds a little bit off of what we did last week, our episode on authenticity, because Nathan very helpfully and unknowingly, as far as I know, built a bridge to the tradition episode at the end of last episode. Um, so we're going to start with Nathan today. Uh, you made poor Danny give the etymology of authenticity last <laughs> week, so I'm going to turn the tables on you. Our English word tradition originally comes from the Roman legal system. Uh, what meanings adhere to it from its former life as a Latin word? Tradition in Roman law uh, meant in a very straightforward sense, the handing over of property. So uh, if you had a tradition, uh, then in a very straightforward and material sense, uh, someone was handing you some land, some livestock, some money, something like that. It was an inheritance. Uh, And so within that Roman framework, uh, it came to be 
customary to talk about not only the material goods that one handed over, but also uh, the intangible things that one handed over as the tradition of a family. That could be education, that could be the memories of military heroes, so on and so forth. Actually, in the New Testament, the Greek actually picks up this concept uh, with the word paradosis, uh, which in Greek, I mean, is, is very straightforward in its etymology. It is the, in a straightforward sense, giving over. Uh, so when Jesus uh, upbraids the Pharisees for neglecting the law of Moses in favor of the paradoses of men, uh, it is what has been handed down from merely human sources as opposed to the Torah of Moses, which of course has a divine origin. Now, as we carry on, what's interesting, and I and you know when I was doing the etymological history of this. Uh, I found it fascinating, is that in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, uh, tradition actually came to mean not only that passing on of property, but it could also mean a betrayal. So in other words, uh, if you were uh, conspiring with some people and they handed you over to the authorities, went behind your back, uh, they would refer to that as a tradition. And I have to assume that that's the root of the modern but seldom used English word traduce or traduction, uh, it used to be basically similar, or basically synonymous, pardon me, with tradition. So, uh, you, you sure about that? Traduction, um, I think that is also French for translation. Well, there is an Italian proverb, uh, let me see here, translere, traducere, to translate is to betray. Is that what you're thinking of? Uh, well, that that's very interesting, but I, I believe the um, the French word for translate is tron uh, or tron. Uh, you know, my French pronunciation is lousy, but <laughs> anyway, that, that that's a very interesting confluence there, isn't it? That the betrayal and translation and inheritance all kind of cluster around each other. Yeah, yeah, and I, and it seems like they have separate uh, streams from which they come, but you know, because of I guess because of the proximity of the etymology, you know, you get some overlap there, so. One last thing that I'll, that I'll uh, point to is that within Roman Catholic theology, uh, tradition has a fairly specific uh, technical term sort of meaning, and it is those documents which, in addition to the Holy Scriptures, are the official dogma of the Church. Uh, and, you know, the paradosis of the Eastern Orthodox Church has that same fairly narrow technical meaning uh, I point those up because, of course, when we get into modern times, which we'll discuss later on in this episode, it's usually that meaning broadened out and made more abstract that becomes our primary connotation, I would say, of tradition. So other than questioning my French, Michael, is there anything else that you would add to that? No, I don't think so. I'm, 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 I'm now fascinated with this confluence between tradition and betrayal. Yeah, I actually discovered, I mean, you know, I was digging around in the OED and I found out that, you know, in Middle English, you know, uh, people would talk about, you know, a, a betrayal among criminals as a tradition to the law. Huh. Danny, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I really don't. I, I'm kind of just fascinated listening to you guys talk about this sort of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, If you don't do the research on the uh, etymology, it's it's rare to have anything to add. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Well, uh, tradition is one of those concepts that's pretty much meaningless without the concept on the other end of the dialectic. So we're gonna we're gonna spend a few minutes looking at a couple of those 
dialectics with tradition on one side. And uh, first, I think it's safe to say that, that one opposite of tradition is progress. Danny, when did that division begin to assert itself? And what about it do you find illuminating, and what about it is obfuscating? Well, um, as near as I can tell, it's sort of a function of the Enlightenment, and then you sort of see the word progress as we think of it now <clears throat> coming up uh, <clears throat> into general use in sort of the 18th century uh, era. And, and you can think of Pilgrim's Progress, right? But this is more of a journey um, progress as sort of moving from one place to another. Um, I too went to the OED to look at this and, uh, when in doubt, right. And so, um, uh, sort of the fourth definition that I found in, in the edition that we have, uh, is to proceed to a further or higher stage or further or higher stages continuously to advance to better conditions. And so <clears throat> this idea of progress as something, as an improvement on, on what has been, uh, inherited in, in whatever way is, uh, I, from what as near as I can tell, it's sort of a function of the Enlightenment, and uh, and it is illuminating because you really can't say look at say medical science as anything but advancement and improvement. So we go from leeches to laser brain surgery, right? This is an improvement, and it is a uh, a, a use of the word progress that uh, is, I think, functional. Um, and and it's not just science that we're talking about. You can think about uh, uh, human rights, uh, and you have uh, uh, you know, the disinstitution of slavery and, and the institution of, of women's voting rights. And these are, uh, this is progress uh, that I think is sort of undeniable um, as a way of breaking away from traditions that are uh, perhaps less healthy and, uh, and obviously less healthy in those cases. Uh, it does get a little murky though for me, and this is sort of my own editorial uh, comment, uh, is to tear away some elements of traditions uh, might be healthy both for the traditions and society at large. So the church's historical lordship over science, for example. Um, this is a, a, a notion where uh, tradition is sort of helpful for, I think, both institutions. Um, but where the notion of progress goes wrong um, is basically a baby in bathwater <laughs> argument for me, uh, because, uh, the traditions of the church, because the traditions of the church weren't necessarily a good fit for scientific discovery, that doesn't make them a poor fit for ethical wisdom and, and notions of, of, uh, uh, historical community. And so, uh, the church is just one institutional example, uh, can get saddled with an obstructionist label, uh, in the name of progress. And I feel like that's, with this sort of notion of um, advancement as always, as progress is always improvement, is something that uh, can kind of muddy um, our discussion of traditions. Um, uh, other examples in this sort of historical tension, uh, if you think about uh, the development of the suburbs as being heroically des described as progress, well, that's from a perspective um, and, 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 uh, and at conservation efforts uh, in sort of conflict with uh, uh, industrial development. Um, industrial development can be uh, improvement, but it also sort of comes into uh, uh, conflict in certain places. And so this is where there are like points at which these two, this dialectic sort of gets a little messy. Nathan, did you, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, just, just to point to a couple of particular figures. And I think Danny hit the, the ideas very nicely there. Uh, David Hume, in particular, among Enlightenment philosophers, believed in 
uh, a sort of historical progress uh, from barbarism to civilization. He thought that the rise, for instance, of uh, the sort of 18th century capitalist model, you know, arising out of the medieval and renaissance uh, guild system and mercantilist model uh, was going to bring the world to a better place morally as well as scientifically and such. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, they, you can't talk about progress as, as opposed to tradition uh, without talking about Friedrich Hegel. Uh, you know, for Hegel, the picture thinking, to use his phrase from, I believe, the philosophy of history, although it might be the history of philosophy. I always confuse those two. Uh, but picture thinking gives way to uh, religious thinking, which in turn gives way to philosophical thinking. And all of these things, uh, although they're not the simple linear progress that sometimes people saddle Hegel with, uh, it's still something that, taken in a large, big-picture sense, uh, always leads from what is worse to what is better, as far as Hegel's concerned. Um, now, just to just to defend him, uh, though, from bad associations, because bad company makes bad morals, uh, he is a lot more complex a thinker than, for instance, certain people among the current uh, emergent movement, not in the, not emergent church, but in emergent biology and such, who make what I think of as simple-minded assertions such as uh, history is always progressing from the worst to the better. Uh, you know, I, I read that in a book recently on the emergence theory within biology, and, you know, I just had to shake my head and say, wow, you know, that this guy needs to read more history. <laughs> you know, as you're talking, Nathan, I'm also reminded of Edmund Burke uh, and his sort of meditation on the French Revolution uh -huh. as, being, as being sort of a, um, a moment at which this idea of progress uh, as continual betterment is uh, called into question. Right, right, yeah, and certainly Burke is one of those early figures who started to talk about tradition in that broader social sense that you know we've been digging with that we're going to be digging into. What's interesting to me about Burke is he—it's not that he doesn't believe in progress; he just thinks it has to happen slowly over a period of time. Instead yeah, of, yeah, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's not—it's not something that happens by revolutions; it's something that happens by gradual evolution. Right. So it, it's really kind of a traditional progress. Burke is the one who, who explodes that binary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, one of the other places you hear the word traditional is on church websites, where it's often opposed <laughs> to contemporary and announcements about worship service uh, services. Uh, what, do, what do people mean to say when they use the word that way, Nathan? And, and do they risk saying something else entirely? Oh, goodness. This, this, I'm, I'm, I, know, I know this is, this is t-ball for you, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. You, you, you just decided to, you know, find one of my pet thieves and sit on it for a bit, and that's fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the idea that there is a, a single intelligible thing called traditional music is, of course, uh, something that's, you know, I don't even know what to, what to call it. I mean, uh, silly is what I'll call it. Uh, it is, you know... The question that it always, you know, reaches for is whose tradition, which tradition, what century's tradition. Now, I'll go ahead and talk about how it's actually used sociologically. I'll be positivist here for a second uh, and say that when people make a distinction between contemporary music and traditional music, generally by contemporary, uh, they mean 
instruments that one must plug into an electrical outlet. Uh, and when they say traditional, they mean instruments that might have microphones and might have electrical ampli amplifications. Uh, but other than that, would be basically recognizable in the 1800s. Uh, so we're talking about pianos, we're talking about organs, we're talking about those sorts of things. Now, of course, the amusing thing is that, you know, the usable forte piano keyboard instrument uh, really wasn't something that was available until, um, and Michael, you're a better music historian than I am, would you say like late 17th century? Yeah, early 18th, something like that. Yeah, right at the so end of the Baroque period. Yeah, so I mean, we're talking about a tradition uh, that is no older than 300, 350 years. Uh, so, I mean, in, in one sense, you know, traditional largely means those things that people listen to in church before the baby boomers took over. Um, <laughs> and honestly, I mean, that extends as well to contemporary music uh, because more often than not, uh, what gets labeled as a contemporary service is largely material from the 1980s, 1990s, uh, very often stuff that's at least 20 years old that people were playing on acoustic guitars when I was in high school youth group uh, and, you know, now has just been moved over to electric guitars and drum sets and whatnot. So uh, one of the things that, again, amuses me about, you know, the the designation traditional music is that it so rarely reaches back farther than Charles Wesley and sometimes doesn't even go back any further than Fanny Crosby. Right. Right. So, whereas I mean, if you look in just in in sheer time, the contemporary music is polyphony, uh, poly right? I mean, for for most right, of right. Christian history, you didn't have you didn't have harmony. All you had was unison. Right, right. And for that matter, you know, as, as I you know, I, I linked to an article here recently and got you know really kicked in the butt for it. Uh, you know, really congregational song per se is an innovation of the Refor Reformation in the first place. You know, I mean, if, if you look at 14th century Western Christianity, uh, it is largely parishioners listening to choral song. So, I, again, you know, it, 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 you know, I, I don't know, Michael, if you wanted me to go any other places with that or if you just wanted to throw you, me a beach ball and watch me swat at it. Can you... <laughs> Can you talk about the really bad Charles Wesley lyric? I just so I can hear it one more time. Oh, good. Well, and, and this is one of those things I, I saw on a blog, and I haven't been able to find it ever since. So, listeners, if you can provide a link to this, uh, I would be in your gratitude. But someone, for a while there, was posting the terrible Charles Wesley hymn of the week, uh, largely as a counter to the you know common argument that uh, the only – that, you know – modern music is 95% crap and the stuff from the 18th century was all good. Uh, he said, no, actually there's about two dozen, let's be realistic, Charles Wesley hymns that have come down to us. He wrote several hundred. I think he, I think he actually wrote several thousand. <laughs> oh, did he really? Okay. Yeah. Well, at any rate, the one that I remember best and this blog, you know, posted an awful Charles Wesley hymn a week for a while, but like I said, I can't find it anymore. Uh, but it was, uh, Lord, deliver us from strife and schism and the heinous doctrine of universalism. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> no, I mean, if, you make a good point because because the other, one trap is saying, quote-unquote, traditional music is worn out and it won't attract new parishioners or whatever. 
Uh-huh. But but the other trap is saying that that stuff is uniformly great and the new stuff is uniformly terrible because I mean there's there are a lot of I I made this point I think on the church music episode there are a lot uh-huh. of hymns that say absolutely nothing and, I mean and some of you know the the classic hymns of the faith joyful joyful we adore thee is the one that comes to mind it is a, it is a hymn that says absolutely <laughs> nothing I hate that song uh, yeah. are you are you gonna play the Velveeta commercial again it's a manwich uh, <laughs> oh manwich I will right. I will try to find it and drop it in. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, see, I, and see, I like, I really like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, so I don't mind singing that one. I don't mind, but singing I, but it. I will grant that lyrically, it's vacuous. <laughs> I, I don't like it because I like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I, I feel like, <laughs> Well, I guess I I like Beethoven's Ninth Century or Ninth Symphony, but I don't know a lick of German, so at least I can sing to it with those English lyrics. Fair enough. Yes. <laughs> the, the other thing, the other thing we might talk about, and I'm 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 going to throw this ball up in the air and see which one of you catches it, um, <laughs> is uh, hymnals as a repository of tradition versus the uh, the big PowerPoint screen. Do either one of you want to talk about what that says about church attitudes toward tradition and whatever the opposite of tradition is in that in that sense? Technology. Well, I mean, the first thing I'll say, and then I'll I'll say something briefly, then I'll kick it over to Danny. Uh, first of all, I think it's a sign to us that the teaching of music reading was a brief historical experiment that, as far as I can tell, seems to be over. Uh, you know, it's something to where. You know, the the working assumption in most churches that I visit these days, uh, and certainly the one I, I serve on a regular basis, uh, just basically assume that to have a book with music notation in it would be a waste of space. Uh, and honestly, even when I use a hymnal, uh, I can't read the bass clef to actually sing the men's parts, so I just sing the melody. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's one of those things I, I tend not to be of the nostalgic crowd when it comes to that. I realize that for, you know, 300 years, give or take, you could basically assume that a Protestant church would be filled with people who could read sheet music. Uh, But honestly, 300 years is not a terribly long segment of church history. So uh, I'm, I'm inclined to say, wow, that was a neat experiment. It seems to be over. Let's do what we're doing. Uh, Danny, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Well, yeah, I'm, I guess I sort of agree with you there. I, I grew up in a, a tradition where we used hymnals, and, and it was a kind of a very low church tradition. It wasn't a high church. And so looking back, although I have no sort of special fondness for them, and, and I don't, I'm not like sad every Sunday when I go to this church that doesn't have them, but uh, I do feel like that was our one sort of minor liturgical thing that we had. And I feel like the kind of dropping of that is sort of one more step uh, like uh, towards isolation from uh, a historical like community. Right. And so um, that that is sort of one thing. While I don't long for them to return, and I understand that um, I never read the music anyway, I just needed the lyrics. And so um, I, I don't long for them to return. I do on another level long for what they represented, if, if that makes any sense. I remember hearing Michael Card, the uh, Christian singer-songwriter, say he doesn't like to go to churches that don't have hymnals because he thinks that it's it's saying there's no need for permanence in the songs we sing. 
Yeah. Yeah, it does encourage like an, an ephemeral sort of um, music experience that is is only focused on the the the, so the immediate moment and and, and uh, broadly construed. I know, like we can talk about twenty year increments or whatever, but um, yeah. And so uh, that is, I mean, I, I feel a little bit of sadness about the kind of loss of that. Right. Plus, I don't know about well, you guys. I hate seeing that CCLU copyright yes. logo at the bottom. <laughs> they do it even on things that are public domain. Where do they get off? Uh, claiming those. Well, how is that used by the permission? It's permission? probably part of the template for the slide. Ugh. But, yeah. but, I mean, uh, t- taking a step back, though, guys, from hymn books to hymns in general, I will say this, and, I, and I'll still stand by this, and Danny, you've been standing next to me when this has occurred, so mm-hmm. phenomenologically, I think you'll agree with me. Uh, when you have basically a new song set every semester, if not every month, if not every week, in a worship gathering, uh, as we tend to do at our school. And, you know, I, I, I love the folks, you know, they are my students who are up there, uh, singing and playing instruments. But when that's the case, they are the only ones singing. Everyone else is either listening or not listening, but participation isn't really a live option. Uh, on the other hand, and you know, Danny, you can either agree with this or tell me that I'm hallucinating. Either one's valid. Uh, but when, they kick into even a contemporary arrangement. Uh, and I'm, I'm not even talking Charles Wesley necessarily, even a song from the 1990s that these kids from Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, various backgrounds grew up singing. All of a sudden you can hear congregational song in those settings. So there really is something to be said for familiarity as a definite variable when we're talking about church music. No, I agree completely. I mean, just observationally, that's what I see too. Is the minute "Amazing Grace" um, is 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 brought out, ninety percent of the crowd starts singing, whereas it was five percent before. And, right. And, yeah. There, and and there is, and that's getting to the point of of historical community that I'm talking about. This is like one of the world's most famous songs, and it's something that has bound Christians across cultures and and um and and time. And and by kind of just eliminating that is a break from tradition in, in an unhealthy way, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that word traditional this time in comparison with a word it's sometimes conflated with, um, the word conservative. We did a whole episode four years ago on what conservative uh, conservatism looks like in post Bush America. But Danny, you weren't here for that episode. And so I'm interested to hear what you think about the relationship between conservatism and traditionalism. Uh, if they're not the same thing, what distinguishes those two concepts? Well, um, I wasn't here, so I'm sure what, what I'm going to say is sort of rehashing what you guys talked about. I, I don't. It was four uh, years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember. <laughs> well, I, just simply put, I don't think they are categorically the same thing. Um, I think that some elements of modern conservatism, and I, I'm when I say modern, I mean neoconservatism. Um, uh, issue some traditions uh, in favor of others, right? And so there isn't just a, a, a categorical equivalence. There's just certain intersections, I think. And, and I think that conservatism in the, as we said before, Edmund Burke tradition, say, um, places a great deal of stock in traditional social institutions like the the, the church and and, uh, and and these sorts of things. And it seems to me that a great deal of the emphasis, let's say, of uh, of neoconservatism diverges from that by 
putting more emphasis on things like free markets uh, and pairing that with kind of big government foreign policies. And so I feel like um, there's less of a reliance on social institutions than there are on economic and governmental institutions, broadly speaking, in neoconservatism. Now, there are social conservative strains that kind of run confluent, I think, with um, neoconservative goals. And and it's difficult to sort of parse these things out on an individual basis, right? But yeah, I think that there are still paleoconservatives, as they call them, in the uh, in the Buckley tradition. And and so um, uh, that's sort of my my general answer to that. Um, and that's a speaking as someone who's tried to remove myself from politics uh, as an identifying factor as much as I can in the last few few years. So this is sort of a a non aggressive <laughs> summary of what I just observed. I could be completely <laughs> wrong about this. Nathan, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, has defined the American term conservative as opposed to, for instance, the and I shouldn't make American one, one poll in this binary, uh, I, I guess conservative as it's used on AM radio versus conservative the way that it's used uh, in a Russell Kirk book, okay, mm. uh, you know, The Conservative Mind, right, which is a fine little book, which has almost nothing to do with R- Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it, it's one of those things where I think that, you know, if, if we can use stipulative de- definitions like we talked about last time that, you know, uh, Scott Kreider, you know, holds up as, you know, the the essence of that rhetorical topic, uh, I, I think that conservative is truer when we're talking about traditionalism than we're to, when we're talking about uh, a certain coalition of political factions in North America. That said, uh, conservative, especially in the late Cold War years, pretty much came to mean a party defined by its anti-communism. Now, the, the historical fact on the ground is that some of those folks were anti-communist for religious reasons, some of them were anti-communist because they were ideological capitalists. Uh, some of those folks were anti-communist because they were old guard Trotskyites who didn't especially like Joe Stalin. Mm. Uh, so one of the things about the American GOP, which brands itself as a conservative party, uh, is that you know really since I, I would say the 1960s, it might go back further than that, there hasn't been a singular conservative identity. Uh, so I do tend to call myself traditionalist rather than conservative, just so folks don't think that I'm a Milton Friedman disciple, which I am not. <laughs> um, the, the earlier episode we did on conservatism is was based on us reading Sam Tannenhaus's book, The Death of Conservatism. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting points he makes there is that in, in terms of the leaders of the modern GOP, there, there's very little conservative about it. It's actually quite radical. They're not trying to hold on to any kind of traditions from the past. There's nothing they're conserving. What they want to do is remake the government in a certain image. Uh-huh. And so... It, yeah. Yeah, so, so... Right, but they need the religious conservatives as a voting block to enforce those policies. Right, so they, they use certain language that that appeals to tradition without actually being particularly traditional themselves. 
Right, right. I mean, if there's any force that destroys traditions, it is global capitalism. Right, which is why I like a magazine like the American Conservative, which is which is uh-huh. much more, much more uh, devoted to that Burkean conservatism, where you're actually trying to conserve something. Right, or the website, the Imaginative Conservative, which has become one of my favorite blogs. Well, cool. Um, all of these dichotomies are, I hope, pointing us toward a more complex view of what tradition is and what traditions are. So now let's each talk. Let's each pick a book and talk about how it treats tradition and traditionalism, and and how it can help expand our view of what that looks like. So we'll start with you, Nathan. Well, if you're going to talk about tradition after the mid '80s, uh, one of the books that you're going to have to reckon with is After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. This is a book that, as far as I can tell, just about everyone in moral philosophy has some position on, whether you're one of the few who regards it as a genuinely good development in moral philosophy, or if you're one of the many who regards it as lacking in some sense, or even uh, hostile to good moral philosophy, uh, you've got to do something with it. So, Alistair McIntyre, he is a former uh, Trotskyite which seems to be a recurring theme here in the last few minutes, uh, who converted to Roman Catholicism late in his life, I believe in his late 40s, early 50s, uh, and really started to explore the Thomist tradition of moral inquiry. And so in After Virtue, he is very, very interested in the concept of a, of a tradition. Uh, but what's interesting about him is that, uh, as, as Michael was describing with Edmund Burke, uh, he is not simply an antiquarian, and in fact, he speaks with some scorn of those who are simply antiquarians who would try to turn back the clock, take us back to the Greek polis, the medieval church, so on and so forth. Uh, he retains enough of that Hegelian spirit uh, to say that time flies like an arrow, uh, but he does say that when you exist uh, as a human being, you're always existing inside of a constellation of traditions, uh, and the past always constitutes part of your present, and it also gives you raw materials with which you can imagine a future. Uh, So, for instance, um, when Marx uh, writes about, you know, the communist revolution, he reaches back to a Roman word, the proletariat, to name the class of people uh, who will be at the vanguard of that revolution. So, uh, even a, a thinker as progressive as Marx has to reach back to traditional resources, even to have a vocabulary to talk about what the future might look like. Now, with regards to tradition itself, one of the most useful things that McIntyre offers to us is a working definition of tradition. And the first thing that he says is, as I said, it's not a simple antiquarianism. It's not just let's not change anything. But rather, he describes a living tradition, and I'll go ahead and quote here, quote, a living tradition then is an historically extended, socially embodied argument, and an argument precisely in part about the goods which constitute the tradition. Within a tradition, the pursuit of goods extends through generations, sometimes through many generations. Hence, the individual search for his or her good is generally and characteristically conducted within a context defined by those traditions of which the individual's life is a part and this is true both of those goods which are internal to the practices and the goods of a single life. So to break that down a little bit, 
the best kinds of traditions, which is to say the living traditions, the ones that are still doing work, if you will, uh, are the ones that are arguing about what they are. So, for instance, uh, you continue to be a Roman Catholic, but you continue that debate about whether Pope Francis is taking the church in good ways in Catholic terms or if Pope Francis is going away from the good things that Pope Benedict was doing, or if you're at a Christian college, you continue to be a Christian college, uh, but you have that ongoing conversation about the relationship between scientific discovery and ecclesial tradition. Or if you are you know, within the sport of baseball, uh, you continue to play baseball, uh, but you talk about better and worse ways to deal with the corruption of steroids, free agency, and the designated hitter rule. So, you know, all of these things uh, are parts of what McIntyre would regard as a tradition. Uh, And really, I mean, it is a very, very rich way to imagine human existence. I think it offers us a set of tools that a sort of atomistic individualism uh, just doesn't have at its disposal. So it's a very, very useful set of tools there. Um, so tradition's a, um, not a mountain, it's a river. It's not, this, it's not this monolithic thing from the past that we have to go live on. It's something that, well, it's, frankly, it's moving forward, but it remains the same in certain ways as well. Yeah, yeah, but you never step in the same river twice, to paraphrase a, a fragmentary philosopher. And moreover, when a tradition stops asking questions, then it is a dead tradition. So, you know, when everyone can agree that this is what a Christian college is for, then you can pretty much guarantee that Christian colleges are no longer doing the work that they used to do. Does he talk about languages being tradition in that, in that sense? Uh, not in that particular book. He does dig into that concept in the follow-up book to After Virtue, which is Whose Justice, Which Rationality. Gotcha. Because, I mean, that, that's like the definition of a Which dead I did language, not prep right? for this morning. <laughs> but that, that's the definition of a dead language, right? Is oh, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't absolutely. add new words. Mm-hmm. Danny, what do you got? Um, I am going to talk about uh, a tradition that's more from the like, liberal um, spectrum. And so I, I'm going to talk about Culture and Anarchy um, by Matthew Arnold. Uh, which is sort of a you know a Victorian document, and um, it's come to us, I think, largely misunderstood or misapplied, at least, where uh, this sort of idea of the best that's been thought and said, right, is um, uh, uh, carrying over some sort of uh, elitist idea um, of imposing this kind of solid body of uh, great books or or whatever upon people. And so it's come to us as this sort of this elitist um, document. But I think that that's not uh, giving the book itself or the collection of essays in it at their fair due. And um, essentially, I think that what Arnold is arguing in that book is that, uh, I mean, he sort of a lot of his, I mean, his philosophy is sort of laid out in that book, but uh, he's basically laying out a, a condition that's similar to what Nathan is talking about here with McIntyre, in that um, culture is a, a means by which uh, we are able to sort of rethink every given moment and, and sort of meditate uh, and constantly revisit ideas. And, and so this doesn't 
necessarily follow the, the stereotype with which Arnold has been received. And I, and I think um, it isn't a matter of carrying something unchanged through the ages, but it's, it's giving people, like reading the best that's been thought and said, for example, um, whether that be Shakespeare or, or, uh, or Shelley or Keats or whatever, but, um, or Arnold himself, um, uh, it's, it's giving people an occasion to, uh, slow down, um, and not, uh, participate in making the world in, in some kind of predetermined image, but to think about, uh, how to best deal with the situation at any given moment, um, given its particulars. And um, so a lot of his terms, I think, have even come down as pejorative. Uh, the Philistine, for example, is, uh, is, a, is an Arnoldian term that we think of. Have you ever seen The Squid and the Whale by uh, Noah Baumbach? There's a, a pretty kind of funny um, meditation about Philistines as being these sort of heathen, uh, unread people who don't like art and literature. Um, and, and that's how we think of the term. But Arnold thought of them as... Yes, uneducated. This is sort of the vast working class that he sort of like um, in England. Um, he saw them as, yes, uneducated, but full of the vitality that challenges a culture to better itself. And so um, the Philistine for him was not somebody to be feared, um, but rather it was somebody to whom we should um, empower to use the kind of anarchic energy that they have uh, to uh healthfully challenge a society's assumptions and shake those things up. So this is uh, uh, not the conservative, staunchy philosophy that we think of when we think of Matthew Arnold, but it's, it's rather radical in that way. And in fact, the uh, the barbarians for him are the sort of arist arist aristocratic class um, that's sort of uh, doing what we have previously uh, accused the Rush Limbaugh crowd of, of doing is sort of um, violently sort of uh, making the world into some sort of preconceived image of theirs. And so that's the barbarian for him. The Philistine is some sort of uh, like uh, equivalent to our uh, undereducated working class that uh, is to be uh, nurtured. Uh, and so this is um, a, a reliance on tradition that isn't dead. It's a tradition that's always living and being reinterpreted and used for uh, social um, betterment. And so it's the pursuit of perfection for him. Um, that's what he, that's how he defines culture, uh, big C culture for Arnold. And so, uh, I think that this is a book that is always ready to be reinterpreted for whatever reason for, um, uh, any given moment in history. And, and it has been by, by people since its publication. And, uh, I would recommend people, uh, kind of take a look at that book again. Cool. I've only read uh, Sweetness and Light. I haven't read the whole book. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's interesting, though, that conception of the Philistine, because like you said, I mean, I haven't read the book either, so I always came came to that term and assumed that it was sort of the barbarian class, but you're saying that the capitalist elite are for Arnold the barbarian class, and the Philistines are sort of the unformed motor that can actually drive human cultivation further. Yeah. Yes, and so exposing them to the best that's been thought and said is not a uh, an imposition of elite values, but an empowering for um, for positive um, social change towards perfection. And see, that's interesting because I, I mean, I, I I never knew I was an Arnoldian, Danny. So you you might <laughs> you, you might be making a convert. Uh, I, I but, knew you, I uh, knew you were an Arnoldian <laughs> <laughs> because I mean that those are largely the terms in which I imagine 
you know, teaching things like platonic dialogue to the young evangelicals we get at a place like Emmanuel, right? Mm-hmm. They've got the fire, they've got the enthusiasm, they've got the energy, but they don't have the direction, they don't have the sharpness, right? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, that's one of those things that, again, I think platonic dialogue especially, but certainly, a, you know, a vast body of other, other texts as well, uh, can give them some of the intellectual tools to actually go and do really good things with all of that energy they've got. Mm-hmm. So, so you're born a Philistine and choose to be a barbarian? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and see, I, 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 I know I was. Yes. <laughs> one is one is born a Philistine and one chooses to be a barbarian. <laughs> there, there I go, not defining my. Uh... Not my categories yeah, I was going to say, I'm seeing a, a Christian humanist bumper sticker in the works. <laughs> we never did make that one about monasticism we wanted to. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk about a book that Nathan and I blogged about over the summer, uh, Hans Georg Gadamer's Truth and Method, which comes out, what is that, 1969? I was thinking it was 1960, but you're probably oh, right. Oh, no, you're right, it is 60. So it's it's not during, it's it's right before post-structuralism hits hits the uh, the English departments right, of the world. Right. Um, and, and so I'm particularly interested in what Gadamer has to say about the use of tradition in interpretation. Mm-hmm. Because in some ways he seems very much like a postmodernist in the sense that he, he's not interested in ob- objectivity so much. He's not interested in um, coming up with some sort of exact or true interpretation what he's interested but but at, but at the same time he does not he does not think you can just approach this from any direction you want in fact all your interpretations he says and this this includes both like the interpretation that an actor gives to a play uh the interpretation of a musician gives to a piece of music and and of course the interpretation that a literary critic gives to a particular piece of literature all of these are grounded in whatever tradition you stand in and, and of course um in truth, we all stand in a series of traditions, right? We don't. We, there's, there's not one we're a part of. There's probably twenty or twenty-five we're a part of, mm-hmm. and so, so this this confluence of traditions in the body of the interpreter uh, produces a, this particular interpretation that is at the same time individualistic and traditional. And, and and one thing he says that's interesting is is you can't really it's not like you can step outside of tradition because to step outside of one tradition is to step inside step into another there is there's no such mm-hmm. thing as a life set free from traditions you're you're just choosing which traditions you want and so even even if you're even if you want to join a group that that promotes the overthrow of all tradition that group itself becomes a tradition the futurists are a school even if mm-hmm. even if they want to get rid of uh, get rid of the past they there's still a past to what they're doing even if it's a very narrow uh, and uh, shallow past <laughs> so so, so there, there is no life, there's no thought, there is no interpretation apart from tradition for Gadamer. Mm-hmm. Did I get that wrong, Nathan? No, I think that's basically right. I mean, I, I would just take the next step and say that for Gadamer, all innovation is the unfolding of those possibilities that are inherent when horizons overlap. Uh, so, you know, when, for instance, Thomas Aquinas... Uh, inherits both the Augustinian theological tradition and the Aristotelian philosophical tradition, the places where those two traditions overlap are the places where it's possible 
to have a new thought, and Thomas Aquinas certainly does several volumes of them. So there's there's no creation, there's only synthesis. Or, to put it a little bit more optimistically, the best sorts of creation are syntheses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm always the Pollyanna of the show, right? Well, I mean, somebody's <laughs> got to counterbalance me. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, if you will allow me a half-second or half-sentence rant here, I think one of the great evils of globalization is its propensity for uprooting local traditions and replacing them with this bland universal culture. Danny, am I just being mindlessly apocalyptic the way I am wont to do, or am I <laughs> onto something here? Is it possible to be traditional in a globalized world? Well, I, I think that what you just described from this, this Gadamer fellow is uh, uh, start, starting to get at that conversation already. Uh, for me, I, I think that uh, we talked about with church music, for example, and I think that's a way into this idea. Um, there's a, a, a point at which globalization requires us to create our own traditions. Uh, and, and, and so there, it's more and more difficult, let's say, to inherit a tradition um, just sort of naturally uh, in the way that we think of traditions being sort of handed down locally and uh, uh, isolated in their own sort of way. With, I mean, and this began, I mean, I'm sure it's began much before this, but you can go back to television as a good example of, an idea of broadcasting broadly um, ideas that infiltrate local traditions and those local traditions then adopt those um, ideas from outside of themselves. And, and I feel like you, it's possible to think of this as always a bad thing, <laughs> you know, and, and for example, the uh, imposition of the kind of bland mis Midwestern accent on, uh, on the world is a, uh, on the, the <laughs> English speaking world is a function of this. Right. And so you have, um, accents that are disappearing because of, of this sort of globalization. And, and, and that is on one level sad. And, and there's, I'm not arguing that that's a good thing, but, um, the reinvigoration of local traditions with, uh, by bringing them into contact with other things, even if it's through sort of the, the nasty and crass mechanisms of, uh, of global capitalism, uh, I, I think can bring with them positive things. And so, I, uh, I would choose <laughs> to, uh, to, to look at it positively. And in fact, I think that with the, I would say the blandness of contemporary church music over the last you know, few years, uh, worship music particularly, um, has resulted in a dissatisfaction among enough people that there is revisitation of hymns and sort of not necessarily updating them, uh, but sort of attaching them to these new sort of praise courses. That's sort of a phenomenon that I'm noticing in the last few years. Um, mm -hmm. there, there'll be amazing grace and then, um, attaching uh, some sort of contemporary chorus on the end of these things. My chains and, are gone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and uh, I couldn't remember the name. I get them all confused uh, at some point, but, um, uh, but this is an example of a kind of a global, uh, of a local community sort of inheriting a, a, a community, uh, two different traditions, right. And making something, um, sort of new out of it. And so, I think it's up to you, Michael, whether you want to think of it as a bad thing <laughs> or, or not. So it's good and bad, I think, is the problem. Nathan, do you have anything to add to that? Are you are you speaking more apocalyptic of, speaking, than Danny? Speaking of other mottos of the Christian Humanist podcast, <laughs> it's a good thing and a bad thing. A <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, couple things that, that immediately come to mind. And, you know, I, I, I think Danny's right that there are always 
Well, I mean, I you know, I'll, I'll go to a sentence from one of my favorite books from seminary, uh, David Bosch's Transforming Mission. Uh, he says that the future is always a danger and an opportunity. Uh, so I'm, you know, that that's sort of you know been a mantra for mine, a mantra of mine. Pardon me, uh, when I regard historical change. So, like I said, a couple phenomena that occur to me. One of them is that when it comes to the counter revolution, if you will, uh, one of the things that's noticeable is that globalization is never something you can escape. Uh, and I actually read this on. I forget if it was the American conservative or another conservative blog that I read, uh, but it just kind of noted in passing that, you know, whether you're looking at, you know, indigenous Native American spirituality or womanist theology or, uh, you know, any of the various ethnic theologies that, you know, white dudes like myself should be reading, uh, you know, this writer just kind of noted in passing, isn't it amazing how all of their politics seem to land on the new left side of the American democratic party. <laughs> and you know, that, that, that's one of those things that, yeah, once I think about it, okay, that, that, that makes a certain degree of sense. So, uh, on one hand, I, I would say that those people who think that they are avoiding globalization by turning to a sort of, you know, hyper indigenous, uh, attempt at authentic to go back to last week, uh, regional spirituality uh if you scratch that surface a little bit uh it's still going to look like one of the meta narratives that postmoderns were supposed to be uh suspicious of back in 1984 uh the other phenomenon that i'd note is just that you know when we are talking about this globalizing tendency uh this is not the first time that the human species has seen globalizing tendencies uh after all we have had this cat called Alexander the Great. Uh, we have had Genghis Khan. We have had the Roman Empire. And granted, their geographic reach uh, was not aided by internal combustion engine. Their geographic reach was not aided by digital communication technology. Uh, but on some level, and at whatever speed is relevant at a historical moment, we're always dealing with cultural trends that invade other cultural trends. I mean, look at the Parthian Empire of the first century of the Christian era, uh, you know, I mean, what you've got there is a Persian, Greek, Jewish, Roman culture. Uh, I mean, if there is any sort of amalgam blended culture, uh, it's right on the border of the Roman Empire. And then you cross over that border. What is the Roman Empire, if not the world's great experiment in syncretism, right? It is the incorporation of Gallic, Egyptian, Syrian, Italian, Greek, every culture you could imagine. So one of the things I would say is that, you know, what we think of as local traditions, be careful about romanticizing them because more often than not, if you scratch that historical surface, there's a whole lot of hybridization going on there. So... Well, was that apocalyptic or was that optimistic, Michael? Yeah, I was I'm optimistic. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and also, to, to go off of that, I mean, that globalization did uh, maybe uh, not intentionally but uh, functionally spread the gospel to, uh, through its uh, you know, infrastructure. 
structures and mechanisms. Oh, and absolutely. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is sort of the bright side, I suppose, if you're looking. Well, for and them. then I, and Michael, here here's where I'll go on my rant, and I I, I was trying to contain myself, but work stuff up now. Uh, you know, I mean that this is the what just drives me bonkers about, especially post-colonial discourse, is they treat everything before the European Empire showed up as sort of this untouched, pristine thing, as if there were no wars and nobody drove each other out of each other's territory. It was as if the Aztecs <laughs> didn't do human sacrifice of yeah, 10, as if the people. Aztecs didn't exterminate the frickin' Mayas, <laughs> you know. Or as if there were no, you know, wars in sub-Saharan Africa before the French and the Germans and the English showed up. Or as if the, you know, the long succession of Chinese dynasties was not a polite subtext for the results of various wars. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I, here, here I go getting on my historical relativism rant. No, I mean, that, that, that's fair. But it makes me sad when I hear something like, I, like I read that that Spain, for example, is considering abolishing the siesta so they can compete on the global capitalist market. Mm. And, you know, and I, I, I think I think they're losing something there. They're losing something very special about Spanish culture. Yeah, that's fair. Well, and and here's the thing, Michael. Here's where I will agree with you, and here's where I would urge a caution. I will agree with you in that. It's possible for global capitalism to eliminate things that are good. The warning that I would give is let's not conflate good with it was there before we got there. Fair enough. Let's actually make the philosophical, ethical argument about why it is good. Not that global capitalism is likely to listen to philosophical, ethical arguments. No, but here's the thing. I mean, you know, going back to McIntyre, you know, what he says at the end of his book is that uh, at this point, waiting for a Trotsky to show up probably isn't going to happen, right? Uh, he said this, by the way, eight years before Fukuyama said history has ended. Uh, instead, he says, you know, what we need to be looking for is a new but no doubt very different St. Benedict. So, I mean, we're talking about small communities. We're talking about intentional preservation of certain traditions. My call is be sure that what you're preserving is genuinely good and worth preserving. That's fair enough. So yeah, I you know, so I I guess I come across as the sort of radical traditionalist which doesn't really work. <laughs> but it makes sense to me. Isn't it called a reactionary? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, well I think I was the one being the reactionary. reactionary preserves things because they are old. Right? I know, I'm just I'm just kidding. And I say yeah. baloney, you know, don't preserve things just because they're old, preserve those old things that are good. Yeah. No, that's that's uh that's a fair warning. Well, you uh, invoke the spirit of the monastery, so as we as we go out, let's uh, let's hover around that for a while and talk about what we think the role of tradition in the life of faith should be in general. Uh, Danny, we'll start with you. Um, well, Michael, I want to go back to something you alluded to last week uh, when talking about authenticity and how uh, it's uh, an interesting development that young people. In, in some numbers are flocking to kind of uh, liturgical sort of older um, visions of, of worship. Um, and, and so I think that that's, I've been thinking about this week and I, I think that it is something to consider um, more broadly in evangelical circles, let's say uh, the fact that we are not just part of a, uh, a local community existing in this time, 
we inherit everything um, going back 2,000 years and, and beyond that even, um, before Jesus, believe it or not. Um, and, and so uh, like, I, I would like us as, a, as a, a global sort of body to think about uh, we do not just in relationship to the community people, community members that we can see and, and, and come into contact with physically, but uh, the more kind of metaphysical community that we're a part of. And, and, and think about what we can learn and, and how we can uh, be fed by traditions that are uh, a little bit alien to us, but yet sort of are invisibly underneath what we've uh, come to um, receive uh, from the past anyway. So. Nathan? Well, one of the things that I encountered recently, and I honestly can't remember what book I was reading when I saw this, uh, was the statement that the person who knows only the Bible doesn't really know the Bible. Uh, and this is something that I'm, I'm always, uh, I never had that, you know, very nice compact phrase to give to my students, but now I do. Uh, but I'm always telling, especially my English majors, but also uh, Christian ministries majors that I convinced to come over and read a few books with us over in the English department that the more of the tradition considered very, very broadly with which they are familiar, uh, the more depth they are going to be able to find in the things that are sacred text, uh, whether that be sacred song, whether that be sacred scripture, whether that be the documents of a tradition. Uh, so for instance, you know, just to, just to point to a book that I taught recently, uh, the folks who are in my class where we read Goethe's Faust, uh, now have to answer a set of questions about the nature of divine grace that people who have not read Faust probably don't have access to. Not because Goethe is right, not because he was even a Christian, because he identified as a non-Christian, uh, but rather because he poses questions that we're not capable of posing until someone helps us along. And that's really how I tend to regard tradition as not necessarily a repository of good answers, but a repository of interesting questions that are beyond our individual capabilities. And really, the more that we expose ourselves and the more we allow ourselves to be exposed to that grand, vast tradition, um, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to abandon who we are and what we stand for, but we will actually know who we are and what we stand for with a depth and a complexity that wasn't accessible to us before. So, you know, I, I am, like I said, a, a, a Platonist traditionalist, if you will. Uh, you know, I say get familiar with Homer, but be ready to cut out some of those really bad scenes with Achilles if you need to. Fair enough. I like that. I'm going to talk about something I guess it's a little related. Um, when I was in college, uh, the the devil term, especially for people who did not live in Western cultures and yet were Christians, was the word syncretism. Ah. Uh. Yes, uh, and and I would suggest that that our examination of tradition here should have demonstrated that there's no such thing as a non-syncretic Christianity, because we all exist in different traditions at once. There's no such thing as a Christianity untouched by the traditions of this world. Um, there's only one that there's only a Christianity that has been examined through those traditions, and uh, 
you know, there's a, there's a good way to do that, there's a smart way to do that, there's a critical way to do that, and then there's a unthinking way to do that. And the point here is not to mm -hmm. be non-syncretic, it's to be intelligently syncretic. Right. Or to quote the Christian Feminist podcast, uh, the interpretation that knows it's an interpretation is better than, than the interpretation that lies to itself and pretend it's not. Well, fair enough. <laughs> that was my pitch for you, Victoria. <laughs> Well, uh, what are we talking about next week, Nathan? Uh, next week we're going to dig into a platonic dialogue. We're going to uh, read together and talk about Plato's Meno, uh, which is an investigation of whether or not you can teach people to be better people. All right. Well, until then, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. This is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore, for Danny Anderson, for the absent, Nath, uh, for the absent, excuse me, David Grubbs. Uh, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Man which, man which, we adore thee, fun and easy and sloppy too. Napkins now unfold before thee, man which joy does bring from you. Make tonight a man which night.